Our New Testament scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 31 to 33. These verses complement the Old Testament passage from Song of Songs that Pastor Moody will be preaching this morning. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Young love, it has its fantasies and then its realities. When I uh, first got married, I knew that I had to make some adjustments. I'd been a bachelor for a while, probably got a little stuck in a rut, and in particular as a bachelor, I had merrily burnt the candle at both ends. I had... uh, Got up early, uh, worked late, I was doing study, and I was running a ministry at the same time, and I was traveling for a missions agency, and the whole thing rolled into one glorious caffeine-fueled haze. Sweet times. But I rarely stopped working before midnight. I was having fun, and I realized that this might not be the best pattern for the first year of marriage, which I had been told by our premarital counselors uh, was a particularly significant foundation-setting time. So I willingly compromised, and instead of working till midnight, now with a new wife and a new life to build together, and all the time that that would require, I decided that now, with a little intake of a sigh, I would not work anymore till midnight. I would work instead until 11 p.m. at night. That one hour from 11 to 12 would make all the difference, a regular daily investment. It's a miracle I survived that first year. And gradually I realized that being married would take more adjustments to my priorities than one hour less work from midnight to 11 p.m. Now, when we come to Song of Songs, I want you to realize that I'm not teaching it as some perfect how-to guide on love and marriage that I have personally mastered. There are a lot of practical guides that you can take from this book on love and marriage, and we will do some of that. But no, there's a bigger theme here, you see. Song of Songs has an overall message. It is, as one medieval rabbi said, a book that is like a lock for which the key has been lost. And there are so many different theories about how it is to be interpreted, and you can find out all about those as you read books about this book. But the key is Christ. See, that's what Paul was saying in the passage we just had read. Now, Song of Songs is about love and marriage. It is about human love. A marriage. In that sense, it's not that complex. It's a song, a love song, 
at the human level. And I can find in this, uh, pa- in this passage, in this book, no obvious hints of any sort of allegorical interpretation that was intended. Now, Song of Songs is a song, Solomon's Song of Songs, a song about love and marriage. But love and marriage are about something else. And when people wonder why such a frank love song found its way into the Bible, it's partly to help us with love and marriage, a topic and theme of great importance and perpetual relevance. And it is to leave a mystery sort of hanging in the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament books of the Bible. Why is this here? What is the key to this locked door? A mystery whose answer is Christ. You see, right from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, marriage was intended by God to say something. It's a mystery hidden, now revealed. It is a physical, human presence in the world that sends a message of a higher, greater reality, which is, we now know, Christ. And there are many... um, Uh, experiences that we all have that uh, resonate with this this concept. You see, that's why single people or lonely people, and by the way, the two are not always the same. You can be married and sadly sometimes feel lonely and single and not feel lonely at all, but that's why single people or lonely people love to be in the homes of good marriages. There's just something that goes on in that context, in the dance of a healthy marriage that is constantly sending a message about Christ's love for the church. And so if you are a Christian and you are married, your marriage is intended to be a pulpit. Now this morning, I'm simply going to draw out three aspects of that mystery present in our passage this morning and in the context here of Song of Songs uh, and uh, apply them practically to our our marriages, Song of Songs chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 7, that's what we're looking at this morning, apply them practically to our marriages as well as to our life whether married or single, it all preaches a message to us under this banner of love. I'm just going to pick out three key words here and Each of them is inviting us to look at our relationships at a human level and our relationship with Christ. Look at those relationships as a commitment. Yes, they are a commitment, but not just in a dour, sort of dogged sense, as a joyful commitment. And one of the things I always say uh, when I'm doing premarital counseling to couples, I always try to make sure this conversation takes place. It goes like this. Marriage, I say, is not simply a deal. A lot of people think of it as a deal these days. I'm going to get certain things from you. I'm going to give you certain things. That's a deal. And if at some point I'm no longer getting what I had arranged, we made a deal that I would get, then the deal is off. Marriage is not a deal. It is a covenant. Till death us do part, you see. In fact, I will sometimes say something like this. As a covenant, it's an arrangement for which the only exit strategy is death. And that puts people off, and that might be good. (laughs) 
Jesus had something of the same reaction when he taught on marriage. If, if that's the case, better not to marry. You need to know what you're getting into. It is a commitment, a covenant, but it's not dour and dogged. It's, it's a commitment that's fueled with this kind of exuberance, this kind of flying joy. So we're not just committed to one another, our relationship in marriage or, or to Christ. We like each other. <laughs> we enjoy the commitment. So three words that in the context here in the big story of the Bible bring that theme to Christ. Here they are first. Hurry. Hurry. So look down at verse 4 and you can notice the lovers are, are sort of running together. They're in some kind of Olympic race to get to each other. There's a hurry, a, a running. There's a centripetal force of joy that counteracts the centrifugal force of sin. There is delight, there is rejoicing, exaltation, exulting. There's a magnetic attraction that leads to running hurry, a pull to be together. Well, we are in a hurry to succeed. We are in a hurry to get to work we are in a hurry to watch the football. We are in a hurry to make money. And all that's a symptom of an attraction that we long to be close and quickly move in that direction. Think of Jesus' story, the invitation to the wedding banquet, that parable there. That's what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. What's it like, the kingdom of God? What's it like having a relationship with me that starts now and goes for all eternity? What's the kingdom of God like? It's like an invitation to a wedding feast. The invites have gone out. Not just save the date, but come quickly. I've killed a cow. I've married a wife. Not as we used to sing in fifth grade, the other way around. And one by one, what happens? They say they cannot come. They would not attend. But hurry, it's an attraction. Now, I'm not allegorizing this passage like the ancient fathers did. No, I'm saying the common human experience of marriage is a God-intended mystery, a lock, but the key is lost, which when Christ comes, the key is found. So, if you are single, hurry to Christ. And if you are married, hurry to Christ. If your marriage is wobbly this morning or it feels like it's wavering, you're at the seven-year itch and it's feeling hard to keep on going, you're no longer hurrying, start by acting this way even if you don't feel this way. Hollywood romance says that marriage is all about sex, and sex must be fifty shades of gray, and, and if it's not, the deal is off. But your marriage is not a deal, it's a covenant. So make a commitment to act as if you not only love each other, you, you like each other. Not so pious kind of a love, but you enjoy being together. Hurry home like you would to a football game. Or if you are a woman, to crochet class. Or, <laughs> or maybe a football game too, not, not wanting to stereotype here, you know. 
whatever it is. Hurry to Christ. Hurry to a Christ-centered marriage. You say, well, okay, I can do that for a little while, but why? I mean, if, if I'm going to keep on doing that without feeling it, for a while I can, but at some point I need fuel to keep the flame going. Well, not only hurry to enjoy the commitment, you like each other, enjoy being together, enjoy Christ. But also the second key word, precious, precious. This is verse 15. You can see here this person is just beautiful. Uh, They are beautiful to each other, precious. I'm summarizing this kind of language you'll find here and in the context here. Precious. Now, in case you think it's just because she looked like Julia Roberts or whoever the equivalent is to people under 30, and, you know, he looked like Clint Eastwood in his early movies, not in his recent appearances, Um, then I think to counteract that, that it's just sort of that they were so, you know, drop dead gorgeous, I think the point to counteract that is the point of verse 6. You see, it's telling us there she was sunburnt. That's what it means by dark. She'd been darkened by the sun. So this is not a nice, healthy glow, though then probably the less tanned, the better, because it meant uh, not doing field work, you see. But I think a statement of being not actually objectively, classically what was wanted then, in the sort of ideal of beauty. She was dark, or as we might say, a redneck, working in the fields, burnt neck, all peeling and blotchy. And some of the metaphors of beauty in Song of Songs are, I, I feel, just weird, frankly. And, and maybe they were not weird then to ancient Middle Eastern sensibilities, you know, the towers and fawns and chomping teeth like sheep that have had a good sheep dip. You know, it doesn't seem like pearly whites to me, you know, I've seen sheep before and after they've been dipped, and they're not that white. Um, you know, or the uh, nose, like a tower of Lebanon pointing towards Damascus. I mean, you try that on your girl. See how far that goes. Um, I'm told someone has actually put them all together, sort of visually, to show just how odd the whole thing is. Some of it seems to be more sort of redneck, you know, burnt, peeling, blotchy, and all, but precious. To me. Now, of course, beauty, the philosophers will tell us, has some objective elements to do with proportion and all that. But one has only to look at oil paintings, the so-called beauties from past years, hundreds of years ago, the 17th century or something, to realize that if it is not true that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's true that there is some choice involved, perhaps influenced by culture, maybe. But what we're really talking about here, if, you know, if we're honest, if truth be told, is the thought life, the dream, the fantasies of the heart. You see, the way to remember your sense of preciousness for the other is to view the relationship in a Christ-centered way. Christ's love for the church is not conditional upon her moral fitness. 
Now, he aims to present her without blemish or stain because he finds her without, with blemishes and stains that need to be removed. Kicking around in her own blood, to use the metaphor, switch it to the one that Ezekiel uses. Now, our love life is connected to our thought life. Men are redeemer, savior, Christ-like, sacrifice for the other. Now, of course, some of you are married to a man who is not a Christian, and some of you are not married. Christ's love for you, His vision of you, His sacrifice for you provides the solid, rock-solid confidence from which you can be secure in your other relationship, however fragile, insecure at a human level, or imperfect. Now, as a man, of course, I do not view my relationship to Christ as like a girl to a boy in any sort of crass sense. No, but his model of manly sacrifice for the other is a model of my relationship with him and because of him to my wife and to the life he has called me to live for him. Now, it is precious. It is privileged. It is beauty. The blood spilt for another reveals your vision of his or her value to you, that sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that in all human relationships the answer is always just simply submit or sacrifice more. I've counseled people in abusive or traumatic situations, and I understand the complexities of extreme scenarios. But I am saying that in 95% of cases, the whole situation would be solved. The other would be viewed as beautiful if we would but forgive, which of course requires giving up our right to judge or get anything from the other one as our just deserts or what we are owed because of what they did, which of course requires sacrifice and submitting to God's will. You say, well, why should I do that? Because that is how we have been loved. A Christ-centered marriage moves then beyond a sort of dour, dogged commitment to hurry, to precious or love. You like the other person. But the third key word here shows that it's not any kind of hurry, not in all situations beauty. But third, appropriate, appropriate. Now, this in a way will be a big overall theme for the whole series, and I'm not going to be able to do much more than touch on it this morning. It's, it's repeated, this refrain in Song of Songs over and over again. It comes for the first time in chapter 2, verse 7, the last uh, verse of our passage. Can you see it there? Do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases, until it so desires. It's a repeated theme through Song of Songs over and over again, this refrain. It's the chorus, if you like, and it's clearly important, this chorus of this song, this repeated bridge in this tune. 
Now, how do we interpret this verse, which is important, and uh, we'll take a lot more to really dig deep into it than we have time for just this morning, because it is the theme in some ways of the book. How do we interpret it? Well, normally, this is interpreted to mean something along these lines. If you are a young person, do not date early. Do not date unless you are intended and able at some point to marry. Dating is to find out whether you are meant to marry someone. And once you know the answer to that question, you stop dating. You, you either become engaged or you stop dating. Now, that's a good application. And let me underline, you will save yourself much hurt by avoiding relationships that are not leading to marriage. And it's right here as an application of this text, and I can tell you pastorally, I've seen that time and time again. You will save yourself much hurt by avoiding relationships that are not leading to marriage. Dating is to see whether you're meant to be married or not, and when you know the answer to that question, you're no longer dating. Now, this is a legitimate application. I've used it before. I'll no doubt use it again at some point. But the core of this is saying something a little bit more, though that is a, is a fine application. No, it's saying a bit more, this verse. It is saying that it's repeated throughout Song of Songs. It is saying there's something about this love. Not the romantic love invented by Wordsworth and Coleridge in the 19th century, a romantic movement and popularized ever since by Hollywood and by Bollywood. But this Christ-centered, the lock with the key is Christ, this Christ-centered type of love that prefigures and preaches Christ, it's, it's that which is, which is meant don't stir up or awaken love and, and, until it pleases. It's, it's like a sign saying, don't wake the baby. There's going to be a big racket when you do. Those of us who are young children are resonating at this point. Well, don't wake a sleeping dog. Or even don't wake sleeping dragons, as a Potter book would put it. Because this kind of love is woven into the fabric of reality itself, created by God, to speak of an inherent mystery that is revealed in Christ. Because of that, there is a, there's a power to this love. It cannot be played with. And only awoken when it is ready and appropriate. Now, the biblical picture is one man, one woman for life. A man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, quoted by Jesus himself. As I say, this is a big theme that we can't get into in every detail this morning. It's so important to so many people today. But anything outside of that, anything at all, and I'm not having a go at one particular category, but anything at all outside of that biblical intention is dangerous. It's like waking a sleeping dragon. There will be fire. And if you're playing with fire, you will get burnt. 
I remember one man married for many years who suddenly up and left his wife and children. He was following a dream, some fantasy he had nurtured in the privacy of the idle factory of his heart. And he was convinced that his children would quickly move on and forget and his life would be better. A friend of mine saw this man a year or two ago, a one-time successful man with international reach. This friend of mine saw this man a year or two ago sitting on his own in a pub, a sad, bitter old man, my friend said. Do not play with fire. Someone here needs urgently to repent. He needs to nurture a fantasy of his wife that is Christ-centered that causes him to hurry to be with her, not hurry to be away from her. Now, you say she does not excite you. You say she does not thrill you. You say you were never meant to be. I say you're playing with fire. Do you think God will let His mystery designed since the beginning to speak of Christ to be so distorted without consequences and judgment? Do you think you can mock God by mocking your marriage? Someone here needs to cut the internet and put on some kind of software or other covenant eyes or whatever the latest might be. Now, you don't want to stop. Let me give you some fire. Do you think you can play without being burnt? The proverb says a man cannot scoop coals into his lap without being burnt. One thing will lead to another and a bottomless pit will open before you. A man I knew in this situation repented because he saw where it was going. And it scared the living daylights out of him. We prayed. He covenanted. He began to develop a dream of a woman that is biblical and healthy, and he's serving well and happily married now. It's not too late today, but the fire is burning, and there is a man who needs to repent. There is a woman who needs to repent too. She has harbored uh, bitterness in her heart for perceived or real wrongdoings over many years. My sister, it is time to repent. You say, he needs to repent. Well, perhaps so. But I'm talking now of you and your eternal relationship to Christ. Did I say eternal? Yes, for he or she who does not forgive, Jesus teaches, is showing that they are not really forgiven. Jesus uses the image of being locked in a prison of someone who will not forgive someone else's debts. You're locking yourself in a prison. And the only way out is to forgive. And how do you do that? It's a decision. 
to forgive. You just have to decide, now I'm going to forgive. It's a decision that will then need to be followed by many more decisions to forgive tomorrow and forgive on Tuesday and forgive on Wednesday and forgive next month and next year. And one morning you'll wake up and you'll say to yourself, I've forgiven. You say, how do I do that? All you need to do is look at the debt you have been forgiven. And if that does not release you from the prison of bitterness, then maybe you, you haven't really experienced forgiveness yourself. And you're here now in this banqueting house with a banner of love. And you need to soak in the love of Christ for guilty sinners like me, for you. And then being able to forgive. That love that transforms the hardest of hearts. Well, it's a beautiful song. I'm enjoying singing it. I'm looking forward to the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that uh, you are indeed love. And thank you that we now know what that means because of Jesus. Love to the loveless shown. And Father, help us by your Holy Spirit as a consequence to become more and more lovely too. Not in any sort of sentimental or wrongly sort of meaningless, pious sense. But as shaped by Calvary, as we've been transformed by that forgiving love in our own lives, to the poor, to those who have been trafficked by a world gone crazy on sexuality to our own marriages in relationship with you Father most of all that then would change us and so change the world We pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.